do not stand in front of a live engine block. You know what I mean? So if the car is still running, try to leave one of the officers. We're going to stand directly in front of that car for him to be able to almost hit them with the car. What it means is that they were both next to the car on the driver's side window, the passenger side window, shooting into the car. You know what I'm saying? And the seats, the seats didn't have bullet holes in it, like where his back was, which means that he was leaned forward in the car when they shot him. Diesel, son of the sun, son of man, son of God, deeply embedded in the flesh. And this is the podcast, Tell Me the Truth. Man, January is almost over. 2016 is off to a good start, I must say. (laughs) How about all that snow this weekend? Man, my wife's parents got 30 inches. 30 inches. That's why I stay in Florida. They paid somebody like $75 to come shovel snow and they didn't even do the fucking bag. So I'll take my rain in warm weather. But uh, at any rate, come check us out at the website, www.tellmethetruth-podcast.com. Come there. We got all our links to Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Google+, YouTube, and iTunes. Because we're on iTunes for iTunes users. We got a lot of hit the subscribe button. We got a lot of different apps you can listen to. And if you haven't heard, we are developing a Tell Me The Truth app right now. So that should be dropping, I would say, by the end of the first quarter. So pretty soon, y'all be able to access everything we got through the app. 
but uh i'll tell you more about that as that comes closer to its release date uh so don't have a bunch of stuff remember check out my man e youngin on sky high tv listen to his episode episode four rocky mountain high and check out my man marley you know remember last weekend he dropped his album so we still pushing that strong and heavy excellent thing go to his uh episode episode 17 hip-hop lives with him and rob zilla check it out all the links are on there and many more now, with that being said, we're going to get on to this episode, episode 18, Stranger Than Fiction. In this episode, I talked to a, a real long-time buddy of mine, Crisis Black. Me and him met like 12, maybe like 12 years ago. Uh, he came down from Virginia to help my friend Sean, who you've heard me talk about, get this beat trap movement started. And that's still going strong to this day. Uh, but at any rate, for meeting him, he was always a very intelligent brother, me and him had a lot of things in common when it came to studying stuff and getting different levels of knowledge and history. And as you'll hear, uh, his mom is from Africa, so he was always raised with a different aspect and outlook, you know, having a parent from, you know, Africa who grew up in a different culture other than an American culture. So it's a very interesting conversation. I mean, I just listened to it again. It was so interesting just mixing it, listening to it, ended up listening to the whole thing. But with no further ado... I give you episode 18, Stranger Than Fiction, with Crisis Black. Let's go! I'm thinking about the good old days, now quick they slip away. But I'm gonna be fine, I'm gonna be fine, I'm gonna be alright. Slide it up and let it roll, let it burn real slow. Cause we all know it's gonna be Hello? Hey, hey. What's up, bro? How you doing, man? How you doing? Man, I'm doing real good. How you doing? I'm slow, man. Trying to get out here like everybody else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, uh, I, <laughs> I was just going to say, I know it's pretty cool down here, but I know it's freezing cold up there. Oh, man, you know, we got the blue going on. Like, I can't even, I can't even open my door right now. Oh wow! So you're like literally snowed in. Exactly. Oh okay. Well, good time to do a podcast then, because that means you have absolutely nothing else to do. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So man, how's you doing, brother? For people out there who don't know, me and this man go back. Oh, at least is it. Man, it may be like eight to ten years now. That's crazy. And, and, you know what's crazy, man? I think it was like eight years, but the time be flying so much that I still remember like the first time we even had like a cipher together. So like it's 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 crazy, man. Like I think we were somebody we were pioneering the whole the whole thing down there in Gainesville for a while. You know what I mean? Like I really feel like there wasn't anybody doing it like what we were doing. With the, with the, with the creativity, you know what I mean? Like, everybody, every city got creativity. Every city got rappers that wouldn't be drug dealers. Every city got, not every city got lyricists, like, true MCs, you know what I mean? And I think that was something that we, we definitely had in common. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, and that was that was a special time, man. I just posted a video on Facebook yesterday of the good old days, man, and you know, but everything is cyclical, so you know, I feel like that's that's that 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 era is about to come back around again, you know, because I'm trying to line up things with the band to really get that back going, because you know, the kids are getting a little older now, so my time is freeing up a little bit. Okay, okay. So you know, we yeah, have. Do you, do you remember? Uh, I don't even remember the name of that park. The shuttle we did in the park. Oh, okay. You're talking about the Bo Diddley Plaza. Yeah, yeah. Dude, if anybody got pictures from that joint, like, I, I didn't want to get the pictures from that. I don't even got that. Like that that day when you had the band on the stage, and like, you know, I remember people, you know, whenever you were performing, people were going walking by with the stop to come and just watch the rest of the performance, but. Yeah, that was that was the critical that was like the, the, the impetus of the thing. That was the first that was the first show I did or we did with the band. That was like it. And uh man, it was a hell of a good time from that point on, I must say. I must say. But like I said, everything is cyclical and I feel like that's gonna come back around, you know, cause uh a couple of the guys I feel like they've been getting the itch to get back in it and right now it's a lot of good music. Last weekend I went to a show and it was a man, it was a lot of good artists out there. I was like highly impressed. Like and I'm not even just saying this, like uh and people out there this band on the avenue. Man, I was not expecting it. They opened up the show, and they stood me up, bro. I was like, "Whoa, All right, that was worth the six dollars right there," you know. So, so it's. I feel like it's the music is really starting to get better. The commercial shit is it is what it is, but that that you know that energy is still there. It's still there. It's still yeah, there. Good to hear, man. You know, you know, music comes to fall over the. Uh, I always try to tell people music. Follow, but if you didn't follow the rules, there was actually a whole 
cast of characters who weren't gangbangers, but they weren't revolutionaries either. They were just people who were there to enforce the dark code. You know what I'm saying? And it worked. It worked. Like you had the, you know, the truce between the crystal blood and a lot of the violence began to go down. You know what I mean? Until a lot of the cats who were responsible for that, they ended up either dead or in jail. And then they saw the spot out of control again. You know what I mean? But like that, that song, Self Destruction, that really kind of put the corporations on notice to let them know that, hey, when they come together with one voice, they actually have the potential to change everything. And that's the reason why you've never seen another self-destruction again. Yeah, and you know what's crazy about that? When, as you was, as I was just visualizing that, if you notice it, if you look at the level of artists who is in self-destruction and each of their careers and each of their catalogs, you don't even have that many big-time artists out there. Now, I mean, there are artists out there like that, but you don't have that many mainstream artists with that level of content to this, you know what I'm saying? I don't think you could do another self-destruction right now. I mean, you could, but... Yeah, most of the artists who are out now, look at, the, look at their catalog. Their catalog is a joke. It's a, it's a lot of music that, like, their fan base doesn't look at them. Uh, like, for example, let me, let me give you one example I always laugh about. There's this one skit with, with uh, Dave Chappelle where he talks about 9-11. And he's like, you know, when 9-11 happened and MTV was like, oh, well, we got Ja Rule. He's going to talk about 9-11. And Dave Chappelle, man, I don't give a damn what Ja Rule got to think about, about 9-11. You know what I'm saying? I'm just going to be glad before somebody actually kept. Like, if I went to the party, then yeah. This is Ja Rule. You know what I'm saying? Like, and that's really the case. You know what I'm saying? That's really the case. But when you think about it, um, we was younger than, you know what I'm saying, if I... If a man loving that happened when we was like, you know, 10, 12, maybe, maybe 13, we would have wanted to hear what Rock Kim and them was going to say about 9-11. Or yeah. what had to say about 9-11. Because their music reflected the day-to-day life that we were already living. Like, you from, you from being found, you don't got to be from, from the Bronx to be able to relate to what Terrence Owen was talking about. Yeah, and you know what? My first, like, my first hip-hop song that I honestly, like, oh, that's my song was Tennessee from Arrested Development, you know? And then the next one would have been Mr. Wendell. So, you know, like you said, it doesn't matter where you from or because, you know, where I'm from, like, when we was growing up, it was all Luke, Booty Shake, um, Slow Down Music, you know, that kind of stuff. But, you know, I guess that attracts, you know, people who just are attracted to that or just follow the trends. But it still, you know, you still had that conscious stuff out there, you know. But now, I think it's just really all trend following. And the sad thing is, and this is what upsets me too while we on this thing. What is up with it being cool to be a straight junkie? Yeah, I, I, dude, let me tell you something. So actually, I had a conversation in the studio with one the little homies, like, like uh, my homeboy's an engineer, so, like, I was talking to one of the artists, and he was talking about weed and all this other stupid shit. And I'm like, yo, so there was a time when, like, when we were feel smooth and all that was doing that thing, when Master Ace and all that was doing that thing, it was cool to be, it was cool to have knowledge, but if you didn't have knowledge, 
and you were going to be a gangster, you was a shooter. But then one day it became cool to be the one getting shot. All of a sudden, everybody wanted to talk about how many times they got shot. <laughs> now, then, somewhere in there, but, but, you know, you got shot, but you was the, but you was the drug dealer, though, so, you know, you still were somehow cool. Then it became cool to go from being the drug dealer to being the one who's taking the drugs. You know what I'm saying? And, you know, I don't want to blame hip hop, because I don't know if you remember uh, Eric Clapton had that song called Cocaine. Uh-huh. You know what I'm saying? And, you know, so it, it's been going on for a while where the junkie kind of had their song as well. You know what I mean? But now it's like, you know, people out there really act like it's okay to be on my It's okay to be taking codeine and all kinds of stupidness. Like, you know, I, I don't know, man, but the, the crazy part about it is that if you look at, if you look at that and you look at the, like, the generation, the gap between, like, your and our generation, and the generation after us, uh, the only thing I can say is that it, it almost looks like it's on purpose. You know, it, it it does. Yeah, it almost looks like it's on purpose because I don't. I, I fight. I fight every day to understand how my little cousin thinks the way he does, and how I think in the way I think. And I'm like, I'm not special, but there's certain going up that was just obvious, you know what I'm saying? But, but yet for them, it's not obvious. You know what I mean? And they just have this level, like, like, uh, you know, my, my homeboy, uh, my homeboy Snakes out of Baltimore, he always says that these, these young dudes out here now, like, they literally are born with, like, no soul. They don't care. They don't care about nothing. You know what I mean? And you can't tell them nothing. And the minute you try to tell them something, that's when they just lose all control. You know, to me, it almost seems like it has to have something to do with the parenting because, you know, just from my experience with having kids and, you know, I'm not perfect and my kids aren't perfect, but I feel like if you're trying as a parent, you know, you're not going to have one of these you know, kids that's just in a rough mental state, you know, goonie monster, goblin kind of kids. I think a lot of it, man, has to do with this damn mass incarceration rate because I feel like a lot of kids is coming up with no dads. And I think, you know, that's been going on through a lot of different systems between the whole, the chick get welfare if you're not married system, you know, the, the, the all those kind of systems in this incarceration system. It seems to me like, you know, the, app, the the broken home, I guess that's what I'm trying to get to. I feel like the broken home just has a lot to do with that. Because I'm like, how can you have these kids acting like this if, you know, somebody's waking up saying, hey, good morning, I love you, giving them a hug and making them breakfast, and then they go outside and don't give a fuck about life? You know, I don't really see that happening. So, you know, my question is, is what's going on with the parenting? You know, in the area I live in, you know, Gainesville is pretty much you know, like country, college, city, so it's not really, it has rough areas, but the rough areas ain't really that rough if you're from something, you know what I'm saying? So I guess I guess I just be trying to figure out what's going on with the parenting or lack thereof or what's going on, you know, what's going on. And I'm not trying to blame the parents, I just don't understand, you know, because I grew up in a situation to where, you know, my parents had some sense, you know, work, da-da-da-da, 
always had a very stable situation, grew up in one house. Um, but I had friends who did not have that situation. And some of them did. And you know, you know, when you're young, you're going to do different things, try different things, especially with that 90s hip hop thug culture. You know, everybody would just, you know, try shit trying to be cool. But nowadays, you know, like, I don't feel like people was really going all in as teenagers with drugs. You know, what may, maybe you'll get like a bootleg cup of liquor from the bootleg house, or maybe like a nickel bag of weed or something. And that would be like the extent. But I'm like, people in middle school or high school is taking opiates and amphetamines, you know, and all kind of shit. And I'm just like, what? Where, where did the disc? And, like, and you know what else you just said? And I'm sorry that I'm kind of ranting, but you know what else you said that really sparked my attention? The de-evolution from the 90s concept of being a dealer to this new millennium concept of being a user, you know? Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah, that's real. That's real. It's more like, I mean, I'm like, I'm like this. I got, you know, I think I'm kind of in a, um, I'm, I'm not special, I'm not unique. A lot of people grew up the way I grew up. You know what I'm saying? And the thing is, like, my mom worked three jobs to take care of five kids. You know what I'm saying? So she was going always home. So there was uh, a, long, a long period of time there where we, we found our way by going outside. Okay. You know what I'm saying? And hanging out, hanging out with the people outside, hanging out, you know, with the, the, the neighborhood folks and getting in trouble and doing all that. But the, the difference is, is that she was, she was doing her responsibilities even with those three jobs. She still would make sure that she tried to check on all of her kids and still would try to be around for her kids and whatnot and show that emotional support, you know what I mean, on top of the uh, the financial support, you know what I'm saying? And I didn't grow up with my dad around. You know what I'm saying? My dad left when I was like six years old. But, right. you know, it didn't, you know, of course it obviously affected me, but it was one of those things where there was so much going on that I didn't, I didn't have time to dwell too much on that. Like I was an angry kid because of that, but that was, that was more uh, because I'm the youngest. Like, I'm the youngest, and when he left, I was only six, so I looked at it like almost like a personal son. Like, everybody else is 10 years old or, or older, and I'm like, oh, so you're gonna leave when, when I'm born, though. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, I kind of took that personal from that standpoint, but at the same time, you know what I mean? At the same time, I always knew what type of family that I came from. Like my mom, my mom told me and my two brothers, I got two older brothers and two older sisters. She always told me and my two brothers that, you know, the culture that she came from, which is the Central African, Western Central African uh, from Cameroon, you know what I mean? The culture she came from, the men didn't really know how to do anything domestic. You know what I'm saying? But her whole thing was, you're gonna know how to cook, you're gonna know how to clean, you're gonna know how to sew, you know what I'm saying? Because I don't want you to marry a woman just because of that. Like, if you're gonna marry a woman, she gotta have a put head on her shoulders, she gotta be going, going places with her life. Like, you, you know, you're not just marrying a woman, she's gonna take care of you on that front, you know what I mean? And then she always thought of the whole idea of working hard, you know what I'm saying? And, and knowing that nothing comes easy, nothing comes easy. Like, I, I look at what's happening now, and the only thing I can think of is, I don't like to use the word entitlement, but I feel like we use it too much, but sometimes it kind of feels like it fits. 
this is where conflict starts to come into play. You know what I mean? Then you, you figure throw a couple of wars in there where, where a lot of the men didn't come back home. You know what I mean? And, I mean, you start to throw in this war on drugs. You know what I mean? And you look at this from the, from the 50s to the 80s, the people who were the fathers ended up becoming the junkies. Oh. They, ended up, they, they ended up becoming the junkies. They ended up becoming the ones who were leaving their families, getting hooked on drugs, no longer being able to take care of their families, leaving their sons to be drug dealers to take care of their family. You know what I'm saying? And, and then when you look at it from that standpoint, man, you're still doing income economy. So you got mothers who no longer can stay home because they got to work two jobs now. Because the father father's a junkie, he's out. You know what I'm saying? No, he, you know, he's not around no more. He, he, he probably got caught up on some petty crime trying to get drugs and trying to get money for the drugs. You know what I'm saying? Or he already became an alcoholic, strung out because there was no more jobs. You know what I mean? But, see, you got the mothers now working two jobs to try to take care of the family. What does that leave the children? It leaves them on the street. I mean, who are they looking up to? They're looking up to the dudes without money. And what are those dudes without money looking at them as? Trust me. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, little homie, you want, you know, go to the store for me, give me a Gatorade, you keep the change, and you're giving this little kid $100 to go get you a $2 Gatorade, and you're telling him to keep the change. What do you think I'm going to do that little kid that he's going to look at you like you God Almighty? Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So, yep. so you tell him, if you tell him later, yo, hold this for me, don't let your mom see it, I'll come get it later in on a week. He's going to do that because he knows you're going to break him off with enough money to go buy him, you know, the best looking shoes. You know, a lot of times they, back then, they wouldn't even, wouldn't even keep the shoes like in their bedroom. But they knew their mom would clean up the room. They didn't want their mom to know they had these type of things. You know what I mean? So they would put them, they'd hide them somewhere, you know what I mean? So, or at their friend's house to go change on the way to school or something like that. You know what I'm saying? And then it got to the point where, you know, in the, in the late 30s into the 80s, it got to the point where the struggle was so hard because the women were not designed to be the head of the household. You know what I'm saying? But the struggle got so hard that we were leaning on, on our system so much to basically be the man and the woman in the house, you know what I mean, that they began to break down. They began to become junkies. You know what I'm saying? Because you got, you got this woman here who, she raising, you know, three kids, you know what I mean, and she's still a beautiful black sister. And then you got these dudes out here who are predators. They're looking at how they can, you know, how can they get some of that, you know what I mean? So they like, you know, they're gonna hit her off with some of that money, you know what I mean? And then try to get her hooked on something. So they got her around whenever they want. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you, and you know what's so funny? And what you just explained, I know uh, people out there who is listening, they need to look up the Willie Lynch letter um, because that cycle is that same Willie Lynch cycle where they emasculate the male you know, because for people who haven't read the Willie Lynch letter, what they print in, in a, it's a very quick read. Read it out there. You'll be very interested. It's called How to Make a Slave. And it, it details the process of taking an African scientist father, 
businessman, regular man, whoever they find, because, you know, these people weren't slaves. And I always have to tell people when they say, oh, these slaves, they were people who were enslaved. They weren't slaves. They were Africans who were in a state of enslavement. The word slave comes from Slav, the first people to ever be enslaved. But, um, you know, so what they would do is they would take the strongest, most disobedient person and they would tar them, feather them, set them on fire and then quarter them which means you tie their limbs to four horses and pop them and they would make everybody look. And then by doing that, they said what that would do is it would teach the women to raise their boys, not to be leaders because they understood that anybody who showed disobedience, who showed, you know, masculinity, you know, would be, you know, fucked up, you know, that's pretty much what they showed them. And that's what he details. Because uh, the story of that is that he's a, he was a plantation owner from the Caribbean who just had an awesome plantation function properly. And I believe the people up in Virginia um, were having issues with uh, uprising. So they called him up to give a lecture. And this is what he said. So he said, you do that. And a couple of other things. And he pretty much compared it to rearing horses. He said, once you take the male out of the picture, you must get the female to eat out of your hand like a horse. Because he said, you can teach the female horse to eat a carrot out of your hand. She will teach the foal to eat the carrot out of your hand. See, and I feel like that's what the welfare system is. Sometimes if it's abused or misused, you know, you'll teach the mother to eat off of this system and survive in it on a regular rather than using it for a temporary means to get out of a hard time. And then what do they do? but impart that on the kids. And I mean, that's not really even a racial thing. That's just a situation because a lot of people across all demographics use and stay on the welfare system for long periods of time. But back to this Willie Lynch letter. So they, they go through how, how to pretty much take a human being and turn them into, you know, a servant tile thing, you know. And at the end of the letter, he says, if you've properly done this, this system will perpetuate itself, you know, until some act of nature stops it, you know. You know, yeah, so it's pretty much like it's like domesticating a human, you know, and once you domesticate like a dog or a pig or something, they just they're domesticated, you know, period, you know. So then, now you tell them, because you know, the first thing that people are going to say, they're going to say, well, the women's mother is a fictitious. That's the first thing they're going to say. Yeah, I have heard that. I have heard that. But here's the thing about it, though. It can be fictitious. Like, I'm not going to deny that it's fictitious, but the principles that it's written or written in the Willie Lynch letter, you know, 1984 was fictitious. But if you look at the world we live in right now, it's exactly like 1984. The, the brave new world was fictitious. And if you look at where we're going, it's exactly like the brave new world. The, the book Cutting the Shrug by Anne Rand was fictitious. But if you look at what's happening, well, these, these Fortune 500 companies that are all going down one after the other, and these bankers and scientists that are coming up missing and dead is off the near as suicides. This is exactly what came from that book. You know what I mean? So even if it's fictitious, a lot of times it's easier to hide the, it's easier to hide the truth in plain sight than it is for you to, to, to tell people that this is, is non-fiction. You know what I mean? Because if you tell them that, that it's non-fiction, they're going to look at you like you're a despicable human being. Like, what kind of person would actually take a healthy woman who's pregnant, you know, tie her to a tree, cut her stomach open, 
and take the baby who's healthy out of her stomach and stomp on it in front of all the other pregnant women. Like, what kind of human being would do that? You know, but you have to understand what they're trying to do. The, the scientific studies show that, that emotional trauma that the mothers go through, they're passed genetically into Epi the children. Epigenetics. Epigenetics. Yeah, yeah, they're creating genetic memories. Yeah. I mean, so if so if you see this this slave master, you know, rip open the stomach or the womb of a woman in front of you and you're pregnant as well, you see that. You see them rip the baby out and, you know, stomp on it and let dogs eat it. Like that fear, that fear of that moment can pass through the blood into the, the umbilical cord, into that baby. And that baby will be born with a fear of that slave pastor that they don't even know what he got it from. Yeah, and see, and that's what that whole epigenetic thing is bringing forward to the forefront now. But now with that being stated, you know, I'm a firm believer that, you know, proper meditations and proper research can undo all of that epigenetic damage, you know, but I don't think the education system is designed to really undo it. I think it's designed to reinforce it to a, to a degree. Because I know uh, when I met uh, the guy who really woke me up, Gennanimbo Atiba, you know, he, 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 he tossed me right in the deep end of the pool with Dr. Ben and Dr. Clark and Chancellor Williams. And uh, I remember the first video he let me see was uh, Asa Hilliard. And he was talking about the Nile River of Civilizations. And, you know, it's something about just getting some real deal pre-slavery knowledge and i know we're gonna cover that with you because um you actually you say your mom comes from cameroon right yeah she's from cameroon in uh central africa but the story of how the tribe that she's from got to cameroon is what, what literally like finding out about her tribe is what prompted me to go on my own journey of uh you know more of a spiritual understanding no means so we'll get to that. Okay, yeah, but um, so like I was saying, when he and and then the other thing too is that's awesome because you got direct accounts of you know where your mom came from and and what and then that's and that's also interesting too, you know, because you're like an African in America, you know, and I'm like an African American, and just like we was talking about through some of those epigenetic traumas, you know. It just it like and and this is something people don't get you know people do not understand that you know with the with the European slave trade man that shit was almost kind of Hitler like because they experimented with experiments you know what I'm saying like the whole thing was one gigantic experiment you know but I don't think it's really taught that way so far as breeding practices behavioral practices. Everything was one big juicy experiment, and you know a lot of the issues you see going on today, I think, are the uh, side effects of people who are a product to a degree of a of a of a little experiment in time. It was it was like five hundred years, but it was one hell of a little interesting experiment because a lot of people don't know that when real racism and I, I'm gonna keep digressing on this one. This is something that bothers me, crisis. I'm tired of people calling this fake racism racism. 
because a lot of this stuff is just prejudice and other shit, but it's not real racism. And correct me yeah, if I'm correct me if I'm wrong, but I thought racism was when one person thinks that they are genetically superior and another person is genetically inferior based upon race. Well, it goes a little further though, because uh, you can be. And you can be a bigot, but if you're not in the position to deny the person that which your your hatred is directed towards, if you're not in the position to deny them progress, then you're just a hater. Mean <laughs> you're just a hater. <laughs> and it doesn't mean anything. It's, it only becomes it only becomes an actual term when you have the power. Combined with the perspe- the perception, you know what I mean. So if you if you feel like you're genetically superior and you 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 deny another person opportunities because of that, that's when you become a racist. You have to have that power. If the person has no power, then what good is their point of view? Their point of view means nothing to me. You know what I'm saying? So I don't I don't care if you know if Johnny down the street who lives in a trailer park doesn't like black people so what he has no effect on my ability to get a job but if Mr. Johnson who owns the Fortune 500 company believes that blacks are genetically inferior to whites and will not hire any black people in his company that's a whole different uh, that's a whole different situation you know what I mean because he has the ability to deny me progress ah Okay, because I feel like nowadays, I don't know if it's the media or what, but I feel like people get inflamed. Like, for instance, this Oscar situation. You know, there's no black nominees. I don't know. I'm the kind of individual that say, well, if there's no black nominees, then say, fuck the Oscars and don't watch it. You know, who cares? You know? I mean, I know there are some excellent people, but I don't know. I don't, I'm not really, you know, into TV and movies and shit. So I'm just like, okay. You know, that's not really a big deal in the world. You know, Akon just got how many people electricity in Africa? That's what we need to be trying to talk to him and see how we can get some more people some electricity and shit. You know? Well, Akon better be careful, though, because he, he got this deal to deal with the Chinese. And, oh. and the Chinese, the Chinese <laughs> and Russia, the U.S., are all playing this dangerous game in China. I mean, uh, in Africa, trying to leverage to see who can get control of these resources over yeah there. it's a bit and that's what people don't know man it's a lot of u.s military in africa and there's a gigantic land grab going on right now as we speak in africa it's yeah. a big land grab taking it, place china is buying everything yeah but that's what i'm saying like what Icon, what Icon did is, is probably very i mean not probably it's a very good thing what he's doing but he, he might get sucked up into a political uh situation that he didn't realize he'd be getting sucked into. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he just needs to, he needs to be careful. You know what I mean? I think that um, when it comes to the continent of Africa, I personally believe that we need to take, we meaning the people of Africa, need to take the approach that the people in the Middle East took. When, when the U.S. first found oil in Saudi Arabia, the Saudi Arabians are like, okay, you can come and help us, you know, pull the oil from the ground, but in the contract, they required X amount of Saudis per year to receive 
scholarships to go to U.S. schools to learn how to do, how to run these facilities themselves. So this way, after, after a certain amount of time, these facilities will be run by Saudis instead of by the U.S. You know what I mean? In Africa, though, a lot of times with these resources, because just having the raw resources is not enough. You have to know how to process it. So a lot of times in Africa, the problem that you run into is that these leaders don't use the foresight to understand that if you're only getting 14% of the revenue from a resource that comes from your country, that you're getting church. No harm. That's, a record, label, run, that's a record label deal. <laughs> yeah, in the long run, you're not out of your country. No harm, but if you're able to put it in a position where where they have to teach your countrymen how to run those facilities, and that after a certain amount of years, that to phase out their own people in favor of your people, then, you know, and then you can increase how much of the revenue you're getting as that time goes by, that's a, that's a more favorable contract. You know what I'm saying? But a lot of the leaders there don't think like that, because a lot of the leaders there are puppets, they're not, you know, they're not really there to, to, to help the people, they're there, like, they're there to help the European interests. You know, and I was listening to, I believe it was um, Dr. Umar Johnson, you know, and he was going in on how, uh, no, I'm sorry, it was Dr. Dr. John Herrick Clark, and he was going in on how a lot of the leaders that they put into power after decolonization were leaders that were educated in those countries, European countries that colonized them. So you had African leaders with European mentalities, you know, and they pretty much always looked out for themselves and their own, you know, their own little close knit group and left the people to starve. And I, and then they're always, and then I felt like they all, he also pointed out that when they would cut up the lines of these places, just like they do with these Middle Eastern places, they would cut it up with no consideration for the tribal, you know, social situations or anything. And it usually left countries automatically in civil war and conflict. So it kind of like, Set them up to fail, you know. Exactly. But That's as I, if you, you look at the continent around the the majority of the leaders there came into power with the help of some form of a European assistance. Like even the ones that we think of as legendary, like Idi Amin. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, Idi Amin actually fought in the Royal Military. You know, he was a soldier in the Royal Military before they helped him become a dictator in Uganda. You know what I mean? A lot of these leaders have had the backing of European uh, powers, whether it's France or Spain or whoever, in order to become the leaders. Where the problem becomes for them is that once they become leaders, usually one or two things happen. Either they become ridiculously greedy or they sometimes wake up. If they wake up, you know, God help them. <laughs> Their time as a leader is, is numbered at that point. Yeah, you know what I mean? and, and look at Gaddafi, look at Patrice Lumumba. You know, a lot of people, you know, have been in positions to make change and then pop, you know? Yeah. People don't even realize, like, I had a conversation one time with somebody who was just talking about, you know, before. Before he killed Gaddafi, they're talking about how you know, he was a terrorist and 
didn't pass the goal. And, and instead of telling them that they didn't have the gold, telling Germany that, what the U.S. did was give them some re, re uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a word for that, it's like re, uh, re-attributed gold or re, redistributed gold, which means that it wasn't even the original gold bars of the original seal of Germany. You know what I'm saying? Like they gave them some, you know, re, uh, re-melted gold Oh, and some cutback. <laughs> and on top of that, they didn't give them all of it. They told them that if they wanted the rest of it, it'll take like 14 years for them to do a complete audit for them to, to get them the rest of the gold. Yeah. And then right after that, right after that, Nixon took the U.S. dollar off of the gold standard. And ever since then, the dollar's value has steadily gone down every single year. Every year, because it's no longer backed in gold. You know what I mean? If the dollar was backed in gold, it would keep the Federal Reserve. Yeah, it's a shame that you have to say that because it's supposed to be a Congress, but it would keep the Federal Reserve out from buying the Treasury to print more money. Yeah. We should only have enough money circulation as we have gold to back up that money. So, you figure if Gaddafi said he wants to sell his resources, if only African dinars, which is gold, gold coins, this would have this would have destroyed the US dollar as being the world reserve currency. You know what I'm saying? And the only and the world reserve currency, what does that mean? That means that all goods and all resources on the planet are purchased using the US dollar. Including oil and et cetera, et cetera. You know what I mean? But if you have a country, if you have an African dinar that's back to gold, the hyperinflation that would have occurred in Western countries overnight would have made the hyperinflation in Germany after World War One look like a picnic with Boy Scouts. You know what I mean? It would have been, so you would have literally seen a loaf of bread go from a dollar fifty to twenty something dollars overnight. And that's and that's why I believe that they knew they had to take him out because they knew that if um they knew that if that you know the shit just pretty much can happen according to them. So they created this bullshit, he's killing his own people thing. And then here's my thing. How all of a sudden it's okay to take a sovereign of a state and kill him in the street. No trial, yeah. no nothing, and we say this is great. I'm like, what? It, what? It, that makes those people terrorists. Yeah. I'm like, if somebody tried to do that here, here they would be considered terrorists unless they were white. But you know, um, so I don't know what's going on with this shit in Oregon too. I'm sorry to keep changing the subject, but since we just hopping on hot topics. Why is it that these dudes out in Oregon has been holed up for three weeks and ain't nobody tried to blow their brains out, but when somebody's marching in a protest, they get fucking gassed? I don't know. These are things that make me go, hmm. I mean, that's the same thing, You create the problem. You offer a solution. Oh, Hegelian dialect. Okay, that's called Hegelian dialectus. Yeah, so at the end of the day, when things like this are drawn out for a long period of time, 
you can listen what they want, and that doesn't be effect that they want. You know what I mean? And at the end of all of this, if the result is going to be what they wanted, it will be all along anyway. You know what I mean? Uh, Ron Emanuel, who used to be like Obama's point man, uh, he, he was coined, he coined the phrase, never let a good crisis go to waste. Yeah. So, whenever you had a, a situation that the nation's eyes are paying attention to, you want to use that to be able to push your agenda further. You know what I'm saying? So this is, whatever you see stuff like this happening, like, let me, let me tell you something. What's, what's funny to me is when, when I look online, and I see all these dudes online with their very ignorant comments talking about how, you know, we need to, we need to get to curbs and, you know, get ready to fight the government, blah, blah, blah. And like, you know, this is the third. Listen, <laughs> we we might just now be realizing that our constitutional amendment to the right to wear arms is under attack, but that thing has been under attack for decades. It's been okay. under attack since the fact that whenever you have to amend it to give people rights that should have rights, it's under attack because you shouldn't have to amend it, you know? But, you know, know. I mean, we'll be more specific than that. Like, in the actual document, we're afforded all of the weapons of war, but the legal wrangling the federal government over the years was able to make it so that you know, Johnny down the street can't own a cannon. No plan. Because they're like, well, you know, that's a weapon that he doesn't really need because now we have a standing army. So we don't need the average citizen to possess these type of weapons. No I mean, this is something that like one of my neighbors and I had a discussion about when you, when you, when you look at the argument about right now, like the gun control. It's, it's ironic to me how the more the argument of gun control gets turned up, the more all of a sudden random violence gets, gets, gets uh, news coverage. My cousin, God bless him, was killed in 2002 by the D.C. police. Like also Mike Brown type too. No saying the only difference is that he was still in his car. They they killed him and then they killed him in his car. The dude had no guns, no weapons, no no drugs, no nothing. It was three in the morning. And the only people who were there as a witness was him and the officers that shot him. The coroner report came back saying that he was shot from somebody who had been standing next to him, shooting down into the car because it went through and uh, the shoulder blade in the back and then through his lung. You know what I mean? Which is, and when you read the report, and you hear that he supposedly drove away, they make it sound like he tried to hit the cop, which anybody who knows anything about police procedures, no officer will stand in front of a car that has a live engine block. Just like one-on-one. Yeah. They, will not stand in, they do not stand in front of a live engine block. You know what I mean? So if the car was still running, neither one of the officers were going to stand directly in front of that car for him to be able to almost hit them with the car. What it means is that they were both next to the car on the driver's side window, the passenger side window, 
shooting at your car. You know what I'm saying? And the seats, the seats didn't have bullet holes in it, like where his back was, which means they he was way forward in the car when they shot him. You know what I mean? And that also means that they weren't shooting from the back of the car. Because when you're shooting from the back, you hit the chair to get to his lung. You know what I'm They were right next to him at the window when I got him. Now, what's the result of this? The D.C. police don't want the investigation. They claim that this is the only, for, for whatever reason, in a city where people kill cops, this cop car happened to have the only non-working dashboard cam of all the cars in the, in the damn precinct that night. You know what I'm saying? And on top of that, the, the mystery became even more amazing when we found out later that somebody tried to come claim his body from the, from the, from the uh, hospital. Somebody tried to come claim his body before his family was notified. And the only reason why they're not able to claim the body is because of the fact that they didn't have certain information about him that was needed to be able to claim the body. You know what I mean? So this was something that clearly the whoever killed him, the officers that killed him, knew that they fucked up. They tried to cover this shit up. And when it didn't get covered up, the city wasn't going to allow their own to get burned. So they, they did what they could to stonewall the investigation. Now, mind you, this is like 2002. There was no marches. There was no hashtags. There was no protests. I didn't see nobody on the streets, you know, screaming out Black Lives Matter. I didn't see none of that shit. I remember being at his... I didn't understand. Like, let me just say one thing real quick okay. about the election. The, the founding fathers of this country had an agenda when they created this country. This is why they called this the, the great American experiment. The word experiment means that this was a test. This was something that they, they wanted to see if it was possible for man to actually rule themselves and not have to have a ruler over them. But they placed enough safeguards in the system so that if we couldn't rule ourselves, then the most ridiculous, draconian, style of government ever would then roll out automatically to rule over us. This is the reason why when they saw Benjamin Franklin after the first Continental Congress that they asked him what kind of government did y'all decide on? A monarchy or a what? He said, no, a republic if you can keep it. If you can keep it. If they you know. can keep it. No, I mean, they know. And that's the reason, that's the reason why what's happening today isn't a surprise to people who understand history and understand what was really going on. You know what I mean? Because at the end of the day, we're tricked into believing that if we vote for the lesser of two evils, then at least we're doing our silly duty. But if I tell you that do you want to die by the knife or do you want to die by the gun? You're going to say, I don't worry about it. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, why would you vote for the lesser of the two evils if they're both having the same end agenda? I mean, and you can see in the writing of many of the founding fathers that in their mind, the greatest form of patriotism was dissent. 
to be to be critical of your government, to point out their flaws, to point out their errors. And then if you ever got to a point where they weren't representing you, you don't keep voting for them anyway, thinking that you're doing something right. You disengage. You disengage. You mm. see you can't continue if nobody's there with me. Yeah. That's simple. All right. Well, like I said, my brother, I thank you for coming in. And do you want to plug any of your links, any of your stuff like that? Not, not yet. The cooking stuff will come. Um, I do want to give a shout out to, to uh, give, give me more food. The food truck out in Navarre, uh, Florida, down like from Fort Walton Beach area. I mean, I know the owner of that food truck. She does a lot of good stuff, real good food, real clean and healthy. You know what I mean? And I support black owned businesses, black entrepreneurs, you know, all that good stuff. Word, word. Well, thank you for coming in, my brother. And we're going to, I'll give you a call later to see if we can line up another one. Yep. Truth Tellers, another one in the books, episode 18, Stranger Than Fixing, and a big shout out and a big thank you to Crisis Black. As you can see, that brother is heavy duty. He's coming with his knowledge. He's coming with his facts. He's coming with his research. And as always, whenever I talk to him, he just inspires me to do a little more research. You know, he caught me with the Riddy Lynch letter, you know, as I have heard before, it may or may not be, but most likely it's a little fictitious. But like he said, and that sometimes you have to use fiction to point out things that may have actually happened that people are uncomfortable with hearing. But with all that being said, I want to just thank him again for taking time out of his busy snow day to, you know, phone in and tell us the truth and to keep it real. So, again, thank you to all the people who listen out there. Somebody actually sent me uh, my man, Sean Rainey. Shout out to Sean Rainey and anybody who made it to the end of this episode. If you ever want to get a shout out on the show, just send me a Facebook or an email or something. You know the ways to get in touch with me. Send me a plug. I will give you a shout out. I'll shout out the city. I think we got like 19 countries listening right now. I looked on the analytics. We up to like 19 countries. It may be one person in each of those countries, but we got 19 countries and we're growing. So if you want to hear your name, your city, your country on the show, give us a holler. And hit us on the website, www.tellmethetruth-podcast.com. Man, it's your man, Sunny Day, Sun Diesel, signing off. It's Sunday night. Kids asleep. It's been a great day hanging out with the family. I got to say I'm blessed. Uh, but remember, if you can't tell the truth, don't talk about it. Open your eyes. Peace. Our people are poor. 
And you know damn real nobody wants to be for. This play is gonna show how the pigs react when the people start to take community control over what belongs to them and liberate it back, 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 Murderation, modern handgun education Price of your life is going up, it ain't inflation Incrimination, they got my picture at the station Elimination, state to state, we eating by this nation Then belly full, my trigger finger got pulled To cut the bull shot, to warm your flesh like wool These tools for survival, make fools out of rivals Fuck the Bible, get on your knees and praise my rifle Your life is done, there ain't another place to run Eat your own gun, scared because my people never known fun Cops ride by on the streets and blow my friends away I try to smoke enough lie to take my sins away This E&J be freeing us in its own special way, son We live for the day, the only way done The violence in me reflect the violence that's around me I choose that wildly, Mr. Charlie keep his eye on me To figure my head, but them ass-kissing niggas is dead We learning chokeholds with fisherman's thread I read the art of Sun Tzu in a couple of fucking days Used to practice kung fu with this nigga that's like double my age And you can put this on the government's grave Somebody paying for the way we have to suffer and slave Assassination World up. I swear on the president's grave I'm sick of living in this bullshit Who down to take it to the full left Meet us up on Capitol Hill And we can get up with some real shit You ain't even safe with a full clip I swear on the president's grave I'm sick of living in this bullshit Who down to take it to the full left Meet us up on Capitol Hill And we can get up with some real shit Assassination Yeah 